Hello and welcome to Net Zero Investor with Mona, where we discuss how investors tackle climate change, the biggest issue of the 21st century. With us today, we've got Hortense Bouilloy, who's Director of Sustainability Research at Morningstar. And we want to take a little look at how investors tackle challenges that we faced in 2023 and much um, talked about demise of ESG, but actually There have been some real challenges, actually, for climate funds, but also some opportunities. And we are from there moving on to the outlook for 2024, where geopolitical risk might be high on the cards. Hortense, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Mona. It's a pleasure. So as, as I just mentioned, there's been a lot of talk of the demise of ESG, but actually if we look at Morningstar fund flow data for sustainability funds as a whole, it hasn't actually been such a bad year, has it? Well, it wasn't uh, such a bad year for European ESG funds, it's true. Even if inflows last year were lower than the year before, I think they proved resilient when you look at the numbers relative to the flows that we saw registered by conventional funds. In fact, actually, we saw outflows from uh, conventional funds, mainly due to active funds, while we saw inflows into ESG funds. But also, I think it's worth highlighting the fact that the net new money we saw is flowing into ESG funds were mainly passive money. So uh, that's an interesting trend. I mean, we know that active managers didn't do very well in aggregate, but this is certainly reflected in, in, in the numbers. So if I can provide a few numbers, um, we saw $84 billion of net new money flowing into uh, passive ESG funds last year, while active ESG funds registered net outflows of uh, $10 billion. So net-net, we saw still inflows for ESG funds of uh, $74 billion against outflows of $30 billion for non-ESG funds. And of course, I think it's important to mention the, the macro environment, which uh, was certainly challenging for investors and also for ESG investors. There were inflationary pressures, rising interest rates, and fears of a recession, even though stock and bond markets ended uh, the year in uh, positive territory. There was a lot of volatility. Now, that's for Europe and But in the US, the ESG story is not as rosy as in Europe. And uh, there we certainly see outflows. So money being pulled out of ESG funds, uh, I think it was $13 billion over the full year. And Hortense, just to get this straight, when we talk about sustainability funds, what does Morningstar actually mean by that? Because we know that a lot of sustainable firms, like for example, renewable energy firms have faced real challenges. But what do you mean by sustainability funds? Yes, that's a great uh, question. I think it's important to, to clarify how we define ESG and sustainable funds. So these are uh, funds that really use uh, ESG factors as a center of their strategy. So these are funds that may have a sustainable objective or sustainability objective, should I say, or they use binding ESG criteria to either select assets or construct portfolios. So there, there, there needs to be uh, some sort of commitment to ESG and sustainable assets. So that's how we define those funds. So we do not include, for example, funds that just have exclusionary screens or funds that do ESG integration to uh, manage risk and, and opportunities. So these are what we would think you know, are more like very, very light green funds, but we do not include them in our universe. But they are included in the uh, Article 8 and Article 9 universe under SFDR. So this is a frequent question we have. What's the difference between our universe and the universe under SFDR, which is much broader and, and has many more assets? So 
Uh, our universal VSD fund has assets of $2.8 trillion globally, and Europe represents 80% of that universe. But you said specifically it's not just Article 8 and Article 9 funds. Otherwise, if you just automatically assume they're sustainability funds, then that becomes a bit self-fulfilling, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I, as you pointed out, they're very different definitions, and this is actually what the regulators are trying to, um, I wouldn't say maybe correct, but provide a bit more transparency on because uh, the fact that ESG is so ill-defined has really led to uh, greenwashing accusations, which are very damaging for the space. So uh, we, we need more more clarity. Of course, these definitions may vary still, depending on the market you will focus on. As we know, the uh, UK regulator has introduced its own regime. It introduced it uh, last year. It's called uh, SDR, the Sustainable Disclosure Requirements. That will come with labels. And they, these labels have their own definition. Uh, in Europe, uh, with SFDR, the European Commission has come up with its own definition, which also is going to be reviewed, or, or at least the whole regime is going to be uh, reviewed. We may have labels as well in Europe. So it's all in, in, <laughs> in, in flux. Uh, it's still a, a very fluid space when it comes to uh, defining and identifying these funds. But I think starting from this year, investors should benefit from more clarity around what these strategies are aiming to do. And also with all the corporate disclosure regu regulation we're starting to see uh, being implemented, like SRD. In Europe, we will also start seeing better data that uh, will uh, be used by these strategies and uh, will uh, make the whole space more transparent and easier to understand for everyone. So progress is being made, right? That's, that's a good thing. Just to zoom in then on the climate funds, perhaps first step here, so we talked about sustainability funds very broadly for our audience. Obviously, the climate side is very interesting. So again, for the climate funds, you operate your own definition of what is a climate fund, right? Yes, it's, it's a rather broad uh, definition. Uh, so we include any strategies that have some sort of climate-related word in uh, in the name. So we have our own dictionary. And these strategies really represent a wide range of strategies from decarbonizing a portfolio to investing in climate solutions. So we've, we've identified five different types of strategies when it comes to climate, depending on, you know, what the investor wants to do. So we have low carbon, we have climate transition, green bond, climate solutions, and clean energy, clean tech. So all these strategies will play different roles in a portfolio as well. And the uh, most popular one, or when I say that, I mean, the type of fund that has the most assets at the moment, and, and this is a uh, going to continue, I think, is climate transition strategies, which are well-diversified strategies that investors can use in their core portfolio. And the reason why investors are showing a greater interest in these strategies is because they aim to offer the best of two worlds. They aim to decarbonize portfolios and also provide exposure to uh, climate solutions. So they tend to invest in a mix of companies that are better prepared for the transition to a low-carbon economy. Investors today increasingly understand the need to finance transitioning companies, as well as companies that provide uh, climate solutions and this also see these type of strategies as an opportunity to make money. So 
Climate transition strategies are the most popular in Europe, but they're also growing rapidly in popularity in other parts of the world, like in the US and Asia Pac. If also can add one uh, more thing about those transition strategies, maybe more broadly, a trend that we are seeing is the growing number of funds that are adding carbon reduction objectives to their strategies. Uh, there is, of course, a range of objectives and levels of, of ambition with strategies that offer emission reduction between 10 and, and 50% relative to a benchmark. And some don't have any quantified targets. But what we are likely going to see this year is more funds with portfolio-level decarbonization targets and also funds that commit to invest in transitioning companies. That's because more asset managers and, and more asset owners have made net zero commitments and they are looking for ways to implement their uh, net zero uh, strategies. Okay, so can you explain to me what's the difference between a climate solutions fund and a climate transition fund? Sure, so climate solution funds are those that invest in solutions that businesses have found to, to mitigate climate risk or to adapt uh, to climate change, should I say, uh, or to adapt to climate change. Uh, so we've included in this category, for example, funds that focus on companies that manufacture electric vehicles or that are involved in the hydrogen business or that you know invest in companies that manufacture batteries and storage. So these sort of things, these are what we consider climate solutions, which are different from uh, renewable energy companies. Now, climate transition strategies, as I said, you know, they tend to invest in a mix of strategies. So they can invest or be more tilted towards companies that provide solutions, but they also invest in companies that have lower carbon intensities or lower carbon footprint. So these are companies that are better prepared for a low carbon world. So they tend to do that in a mix of companies or they can also have some sort of portfolio decarbonization target. So there, there's also a mix of strategies which we tend to call hybrid. So they really aim to both reduce risk in portfolios and as well provide investors with those opportunities that arise from climate change. Looking at those flows over the last few years, obviously our listeners can't hear that, but it seems to be a trend. As you mentioned just now, there's growing demand for climate transition, climate solutions. Actually, investor appetite for low carbon strategies has slowed down a bit. And perhaps there's even a sort of willingness among investors to accept slightly higher levels of carbon in their portfolios in the medium term just to then have like in a way what they like to call real world change and actually fund energy transition, which might be a carbon intensive process in itself. Is, is that a correct impression? Absolutely, absolutely yeah, I, w I would say that. We've seen an evolution of uh, low carbon strategies. They used to be quite uh, simple and, uh, you know, you would just take a, a company's carbon intensity or carbon footprint and you would just, you know, build a portfolio around, around these companies that would have the lowest carbon intensity. But over time, with more data, uh, with uh, more sophistication, uh, we've seen a strategy evolve towards something that does not focus on this type of companies, as I said, you know, low carbon companies, but those that also have transition plans, those, for example, that uh, would have more investments in climate solutions. Our strategies now use many more metrics that will allow them to differentiate between companies. So that's why, you know, we, we're seeing this group of low carbon strategies kind of uh, shrink a bit over time uh, as the assets are transitioning towards more sophisticated strategies and also 
those strategies that invest in companies that offer solutions. You mentioned transition data. You have that in, in your Morningstar data as well, right? Yeah, absolutely, because we created our sister company, Systematics, uh, created the low-carbon uh, transition uh, rating, which is some sort of uh, implied temperature rise metric, which indicates if all companies in the world operated the same way as one particular company, the world would warm up by, I don't know, two degrees or three degrees or whatever. What we're seeing is that, unfortunately, based on our methodology, we're not seeing any companies uh, among our coverage of over 7,000 companies are currently aligned with a 1.5 degree world, which is not that much of a surprise, actually, because uh, we know we're not on track to reach 1.5 degrees. I think it's important to highlight that in our methodology, we consider that every company in every sector has its bits to do to reduce emissions. We're not saying it's only the largest carbon emitters that need to reduce emissions. And of course, these are the most misaligned companies, but we're saying also that pharmaceutical companies, technology companies in any sector will also have to take the responsibility and we assign them a a carbon budget, which varies depending on sector, but they will have to have plans to transition and meet, you know, this carbon budget that we've uh, assigned to them. So that's why, although every company has its own implant temperature rise metric, they're also given a different objective. And we are monitoring the way they transition. And we also assess the quality of the transition programs, the governance they have in place, the investments that they're making to inform investors about really the, the efforts that those companies are making uh, to transition. Very interesting. Just to jump from here, we've, we've had so far quite a reflective conversation, looking back a lot at the challenges over the last few years and the trends. But looking forward a bit into this year, um, we talked about it earlier. So, I mean, there's obviously it's going to be a big election year. How is that going to influence investors' confidence on the energy transition? Yeah, so more than half the world's population will vote this year, which is, uh, I think, a, a first in, in history. And there is the U.S. presidential election in November. There is also the European Parliament election in June. And of course, as you said, I think a lot will hang on the result of the uh, U.S. election. If President Trump returns to uh, office, it won't be without consequences on global markets, although no one really knows what the impact could be. But when it comes to, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act of uh, President Biden, which was widely recognized as a, as a very positive development with its $1 trillion in incentive to support clean energy, while this Inflation Reduction Act is unlikely to be repealed, it could be watered down. Trump could uh, increase support to fossil fuel production and downgrade climate action. And this, of course, could be highly damaging sentiment, but it is unlikely to change the economics of renewable electricity, electric vehicles, and other advanced environmental technologies. I think the train has left the station. The world has committed to reduce emissions. At the last COP, countries committed to triple renewable energy uh, capacity and also to improve energy uh, efficiency. And companies are taking notes and they are certainly going to adapt their strategies accordingly. Very interesting. I mean, just a bit of speculation here, but uh, that might only just reinforce what we just talked about, this trend to invest really into climate solution and to transition strategies rather than just mechanically reducing your one's carbon footprint, do you think? 
Well, well, then we can't forget the fundamentals of the market. And uh, we saw in the past couple of years that buying renewable stocks was not a good uh, investment. So like, we can't ignore the macroeconomic uh, factors such as inflation, such as interest rates. Elevated interest rates uh, are not good news for growth companies. They tend to be affected more than value companies, and ESG funds tend to be more biased towards growth companies. Renewable energy companies are growth uh, companies. I mean, the, the good news is that, I mean, I'm not an economist, but it seems that uh, everyone agrees that the, the cycle of interest rate rises uh, looks largely complete in major markets, so we should see uh, lower interest rates, or at least a stop in rising interest rates this year, that should be positive news for like um, growth companies. And so maybe yes, it, it is the right time to invest in uh, in climate solutions. It depends on on the type. Like electric vehicles is also another trend that is being watched very very carefully. Every green technology, every climate solution has its own uh, fundamentals. And this is what investors need to do, I mean, to understand those fundamentals and make bets accordingly. Yeah, you rightly pointed out renewable stocks. I mean, they've, they've had a really difficult year last year. But do you think with inflation coming down, they might be recovering a little bit? Well, I, I, I don't want to make any recommendations or, or, or predictions, but I'm just highlighting the factors that have really plagued those stocks in the past couple of years. There's been some supply chain issues as well. There's been some issues with permits given by government. So there's also like an, an ecosystem around these companies that also need to be uh, strengthened. We haven't talked about the role of China. China is, is the biggest renewable energy market, but we know that Western countries are trying to limit our dependence on China, that could create some geopolitical tension, that could also create some inflation, that could also slow the pace of our own transition. These are a trade-offs that governments and policymakers have to think about. It's very dynamic. It's a very dynamic space and quite complicated. Thank you. I think that's offered us a lot of insights and hopefully a bit more clarity on what we might expect in the energy transition going forward. Well, thank you so much, Hortense. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you very much for having me, Mona. And we catch up throughout the year and see how things unfold. Thank you very much. Thank you.